All right, guys. Good morning. How you doing this morning? Okay. Good morning. Good, good. We we've, we've talked a little bit uh, already, kind of about the trip. But uh, ha- have y'all recovered from your trip to Scotland yet? Totally. I know, Mike. You said you're still kind of dealing with some uh, effects. But uh, how, how y'all doing? Get back into the swing of things. Well, I mean, it. Uh, if you got if you have any physical flaws or imperfections, it certainly it certainly magnifies them. <laughs> well, I'm glad that doesn't apply to you guys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, not, yeah. I, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah we're just, but, I've got Marvin against the ropes already. He's really, yeah. he doesn't know what to say. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, we'll, we'll deal with it in the, in the course of time. I'm sure, uh, our, our weaknesses and imperfections against the divine majesty. I mean, it's kind of a, kind of a thread. So, Oh yeah. I'll, I'll just, I'll just let that speak for me. Definitely. Definitely. All right. Well guys, why don't we just go ahead and, and jump in here? And I really, I really feel just, just starting out. I mean, boy, we, we are on some high and holy ground in what we're going to be talking about today. So, so basically the majority of what we're going to talk about is where Beaky shifts gears from talking about revelation and what we've been talking about with general revelation, uh, special revelation and applied revelation, which we're going to pick up the tail end of that, uh, this morning talking about applied revelation, but then he's going to turn the corner and boy, we're going to go up to the very top of Mount Everest and we're going to talk about the doctrine of God. And so that's, uh, that is so huge. And, and you really, you really do see how small you are whenever you look at something that big. I mean, we see that out in creation. You look at a huge, you know, Vista mountain range or a huge sea, uh, and you just realize, you know, how small you are compared to God's huge, expansive creation. Well, what is it like when, when you're, you're looking quote unquote <laughs> at God himself, you know, as he's revealed himself in, in his word and you, you just really see how, how small you are. But before we get into that, let's pick up the tail end of revelation, God revealing himself to us. And we've talked about how he's revealed himself to us in creation in a general way, how he's revealed himself to us in scripture in a special way, how we can know, how we can have a relationship with him, who Christ is, uh, how we can have our sins forgiven and how we can be made, um, to be able to stand faultless before the throne of grace, before God, who is holy, holy, holy. And we're going to get into that discussion at, at the very end of our talk today. But uh, but Beaky talks about applied revelation for practical fruit. And I love this section because this is really what it comes down to. What How do, how do we, uh, knowing that we've got, you know, specifically special revelation, God's word, how, how do we apply it? And what do we want to see? Uh, in our lives. And there's so much that is here. And and I tell you, I, I feel like I could just go through reading section after section of this. And and I, that's what I want to kind of do. I, I want to read uh, a few passages here. And then uh, for our discussion of this chapter, I want to just toss it over to you all. And you guys make comments, discuss, point out what stands out to you, point out to, you know, in your own mind and your own thinking, uh, you know, aspects of this subject. But let me just start off, if, if, if you don't mind, just, just reading some of what Beaky says here. He says, first of all, uh, applied, this is top of page 459, applied revelation creates the church's practical response to the Holy Scriptures. And I love that. This, this is 
this is our response, our reply to God's word. And then um, down the page under the section titled personal faith in the scriptures, he says, nothing is more essential to the profitable study of Holy scripture than personal faith in them as the word of God to you. And that talks about how we have to believe in scripture. He goes on to say in the middle of page 460, we cannot separate faith in Christ faith in the gospel, and faith in the Bible. All three coalesce as one through the Spirit's work of illumination. And of of course, we can't separate those because if you don't believe in Scripture, how will you ever have faith in Christ? Because it is Scripture that gives to us who Christ is. How are you going to have faith in the gospel when it is Scripture that tells us what the gospel is? And so we have to believe in all three of those. And then page 461 right before uh, the middle of the page where he breaks into a different section, that paragraph says, trust in God's word, count all scripture to be the absolute truth of God, receive all that the Bible teaches, stake your life on it, cling to the word as a drowning man clings to a life preserver, build upon it with personal obedience as the bedrock foundation of your life. And just a couple more things, then I'll toss it to you guys. Page 462, second paragraph. He says, the Spirit's work of inward illumination is like the sunshine. I, I love how I can almost hear the Puritans in Beaky as he writes this. The Spirit's work of illum- uh, inward illumination is like the sunshine, for it dawns at conversion and grows brighter and warmer as Christ rises in the esteem and affections of the soul. But the shining of this light knows no zenith or sunset. Neither is this work of the Spirit a substitute for continued study of the Word, but rather an encouragement of it and the greatest help in it. And then last sentence in that paragraph, all people who have access to the Scriptures have a responsibility to learn their contents, understand their message, and respond to them with faith and obedience. And then just two more things. Last paragraph at the bottom, feed on the word, Jeremiah 15, 16. Nourish your soul in a continual feast upon the Holy Scriptures. Then he goes on to say, beware of giving more attention to what men say about the Bible than to the Bible itself. When you read a book or sit in a class, do so with an open Bible to look up scripture references. You can be continually in the school of Christ, sitting like Mary at the feet of Jesus, Take up this great privilege through devotion to personal Bible study. Christians are pilgrims. Use the Bible as your map and guide to eternal happiness and glory. And then the very last thing at the bottom of the page, he says, you should read and study God's word for more than bare knowledge of the truth. God's word illumined by the spirit opens the doors of the sanctuary of heaven itself so that you may enter in to hear the voice of your father in heaven. Behold your savior crowned and triumphant and add your voice to the thundering chorus of praise offered to God and the lamb by saints and angels in heaven. Whew. I'd almost make you Pentecostal. Hallelujah. Glory. Right. <laughs> I mean, that is something yeah. else. We, we, we need BJ's crew here to break out with a hallelujah. <laughs> I know we do. We do. Well, guys, what do you think about that? This whole subject of, of applied theology, we have the scriptures, we have the word of God. Now here's the question. What is our response to it? What do we do with it? How do we react to it? Well, I, you, uh, go ahead, Mike. Oh, I was getting ready to say, uh, I kind of, uh, uh, 
skim back through these and tried to summarize the things. But so what I did for this for chapter 25, I, I just said, based on what, what we what what he, the contents of, I said we we for the personal fruit of the applied revelation, we we still have a choice. You know, the uh, he says that the word begins with with the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit using the word of God to quicken and to work us to work faith in our hearts. But then the application as we continue to study and, and grow, we, we, God's truth is revealed to us, uh, his, uh, his statutes, but we have a choice to be obedient to them or to, to be disobedient, or I guess to sin or, or not to sin. And uh, so the question is, do we cherish God's word? I mean, does mm. it, do, we, do we trust it? Do we cling to it? Do we savor it? Um, do, do, we, do we show our dependency on the word, which reflects our dependency on, on, on our God, our heavenly father? And then I like the quote that was on uh, uh, following up uh, with what do we do with it? Uh, the mm-hmm. Bible at the bottom of page 464, he says, the Bible should sit at the center of the family life. A home mm-hmm. without the Bible is a ship without a rudder. And that's so true. I mean, I think that's where uh, uh, if, if the family is not following and preaching and, and, and uh, teaching the word of God and living the word of God, you, you know, how do we... It's difficult for the church to do the same if the, if the family's not doing it. Right. And then the and then the other quote I I, I, I noted that had uh, that I thought was very significant was, was on page four seventy one, uh, where he talks about uh, you know we, we the dependency and the, the, he says God has given man the man of God a sacred manual that if humbly studied and followed will equip him completely for all good works of ministry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's that. That was kind of so. I mean, what do we do with it? We apply it to our lives. We 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 uh, we cling to it. We study it. We meditate on it. We pray it back. We we live it. Uh, that's what we need to do with the with the Word of God, and we need to share it. It's, it's not something for us to, to 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 keep in a in a box or in a can on a shelf or just in our you know just say it's personal. It's private. We need to share. We need to show. That's right, Marvin. Well, you guys have uh, have uh, done a really good job of of, of uh, laying it out there. I would just say that uh, this again, I think, illustrates to me one of the strengths of uh, Beaky's uh, theology, um, the way he lays it out and explains it. And I think it's a good launching point for the section of the theology of God proper, and and that is uh, the knowability of God. That is. Is he a God I mean, in terms of the attributes, which we'll get to, to some degree. I mean, as we discussed earlier, we're not going to lay out lists and things. Um, but just to understand that he is a God uh, who is infinite, all wise. He's everywhere. Uh, he's holy and without peer. Uh, and then to, and then to ask the natural question, which Adam and Eve seem to take naturally because that's the way they were created uh, is that they, is that they moved by God's word that God's word to them was pure. It was all the things, uh, in its applied state. Uh, it was the way they knew God, uh, and to the degree that they fell and disobeyed, uh, it was a disobedience again, against explicitly what God had said. So Beaky's words here in terms of the scriptures and in terms of applying them in our lives, I think, uh, goes fundamentally to the question that we will get to 
uh, in many ways in the in the section on theology proper is the modern approach to theology. How do we know God? Um, do we know him? Do we know him by grasping for him, by climbing up one one uh, one step at a time, and then uh, coming to the end, and then beholding mystery and unknowability, and thus uh, going either into skepticism or mysticism, or, or do we, or do we come to that place to where we see uh, that God has revealed Himself, but He's chosen to reveal Himself through His Word by the Spirit, and He engages us, and I think this is a theme that Beaky brings to again and again in terms of the character of God. Uh, he certainly is infinite and unknowable, but as a but as the way he's manifested himself to us, it, it's in a covenantal relationship. And I, I, as we get to the section on the holiness of God, I thought this was a wonderful part of that chapter in which he talks about uh, holiness, uh, not as so much a a uh, an attribute that stands by itself, but it is the magnifier for all his other attributes. And, and the other part of that uh, is that. Uh, is that he draws us into covenant with us. Um, and as he says there, he says, this is the reason why in our sins, God does not destroy us because he has claimed us. Uh, he's created us. He's claimed us in Christ for the purpose for which he created us. He's made us new creatures. He's, he's caused us to be born again. And he has given to us his living word, as Peter says in First Peter 2, um, the sincere milk of the word that we may grow thereby. Uh, this natural, fundamental, familial uh, uh, dependence upon God's word that Beaky applies in this chapter, I think does all of those. Um, and it keeps us from error. Uh, it keeps us from um, falling into the trap of the philosophers. Uh, and it grounds us in a way to where uh, we see it applied in all aspects of life. Um, in, in every part, and they, he does a good job of going all the way down to the family to worship and so forth. Uh, but it is uh, to the to the degree that we neglect it, corrupt it, uh, or whatever, uh, we really have uh, lost uh, the very means of grace that God has that God has given to us. And I think in the end, the way he breaks this down and classifies it, I think the main theme the main theme in this is that. God has given it, us his word as a means of grace. Uh, it is not to be, it is not to a magic talisman. It is not something uh, that we uh, uh, take, the, take the covers, throw it on the floor, open it up to a section, and then guide our life by it. It's the systematic study and exposition of the word, not only personally and in our family, but very importantly, I think he makes this point in the congregation. Uh, God has given men who are frail creatures of dust, as we all are, all three of us. But he has given to us that sacred responsibility uh, to the uh, to the point uh, where we agree with James: Let no man desire to be a teacher, <laughs> mm -hmm. because there's a great because there's a greater standard that comes with that. And it's true. I mean, we speak and represent the living God through His Word, uh, and knowing that that is the primary means of communication between us, God's Word by His Spirit. Uh, then to distort that or corrupt that really is to endanger the souls not only of those that we love and are within our care, but also certainly of ourselves as well. Um, it seems to me that's exactly the reason why 
uh, Paul and the other New Testament writers are so insistent on te- on sound teaching, uh, repeating it or teaching it, repeating it, repeating it, repeating it, uh, entrusting it to faithful men, following up with them and making sure that it is clear, uh, that it is practical and that it is uh, that which uh, will move the people of God in that covenantal relationship in a way that not only that pleases God, but is also the reason whereby he redeemed them. Uh, what a glorious, I agree with you. The three hallelujahs. Again, I, uh, I can, I can hear, I can hear the boys in India. <laughs> yeah. If, as this is translated, I, I guess it hits their ears. And, hallelujah, hallelujah. and it right. is, it's a, uh, again, uh, Beaky is wonderful about the doxological sections. Mm-hmm. And, and indeed, I think in terms of the prolegomena, as we would say, I, I think he hits it right on. He hits the sweet note right here on this in terms of, uh, really, as we go into the theology of God proper to understand that our knowledge is staked in the word of God, that all the special general revelation, all the things that we've talked about in terms of ways of we know God is indeed true. But unless we grasp those and make them personal, uh, then uh, then we are nothing. I, I love the way and I've lost my place here. Uh, but, but, but again, I, I think it was the l- very last thing that you, uh, that you said, and I thought was so, or, or that you read, oh yeah, it's on page 463, that first full paragraph. I love this. He says, Christians are pilgrims. Use the Bible as your map and guide to exercise happiness and glory. Mm. Uh, and I, and I'll use an illustration and Mike can chime in on this as well our trip to England in terms of, uh, in terms of an analogy with this, uh, uh, I, I think Mike would agree with this. Uh, every time we got into the church van to go somewhere and of course their steering wheels on the right side, every time he would make a turn or whatever, uh, we just, I would cringe inside because I say, you're about to run into somebody, dude, <laughs> uh, but he didn't. And also the strangest thing they would have, I actually have, uh, two, two traffic lights at the same location, uh, reading those as to which one is your ghost signal and which one's your stop signal is absolutely fundamental. Uh, and so again, I mean, I, I'll, I'll speak for Mike as well. Like I, I feel confident in this, that if, if the, if Scotland does their driver's test, like the U S does, we could not just pick up our knowledge, uh, and go over there and sit for that test. I mean, it's a much more complex thing. And so it is, I think, I love that analogy here as pilgrims. Uh, basically, we are in a strange land. This is, a, this is God's creation. Uh, this is what he has put forth for his glory. Uh, it's been corrupted by sin, not only ours, but uh, as Paul says in Romans 8, this, the creation itself has been su- subjected to futility uh, and demonstrates itself uh, regularly through the disruptions of itself to signify the fact that things are not right and that there needs to be a resetting and the pilgrim, uh, it, it, Peter refers to, uh, uh, refers in, in, in the first section, he dresses to dress himself to the par, uh, the, 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 the pilgrims, um, in, in that congregation. And I think that's a vital analogy. And I think it really sets us up very well. Uh, as you said, Van, I think, uh, now and, and before we got on, uh, really, we are, uh, if you, if you've got britches legs, uh, roll them up because uh, when we get into the theology of God proper, we really are getting in to some, um, 
to some high and holy study there and things that are outside our comfort level, but things with which the church has struggled uh, as pilgrims in the world and, and tried to find ways to express it in a way that was helpful to the people, that was good for their souls, uh, but again, uh, was something that, uh, that was very useful. So uh, great awesome. section, I thought, great section, I thought. I mean, it was a good launching point for the next section. Right, right, and 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 let's get into that. And and Mike, what I want to ask you, going into his next uh, chapter, which I mean, there he really gets into it—the true knowledge of God. Uh, but the two fundamental questions, and the one I want to ask you is: is is how can we know God? And then the the second question is, honestly, what difference does it make? And so. Uh, going into the next chapter, he talks about the power of knowing the true God, and then he talks about the possibility of knowing the true God. But as you're as you're sort of thinking on that, I think the answer to that second question, you know, honestly, what does it matter? Okay, if we can know God, why would that even matter? I think that that actually kind of goes back and dovetails with the chapter that we just talked about because when we talk about revelation, we're talking about the application of revelation. And if you want to just bottle it down and boil it down to one sentence, what does the word of God do when it's applied to the human heart? It changes a life. It transforms a life. And 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 Beek even breaks it out into that, the personal fruit, fruit of applied revelation, the familial fruit, the fruit in your family of applied revelation, ecclesiastical fruit, the, the change in the church, the fruit that comes in the church life, societal fruit, the change that comes in society, international fruit, what happens all throughout the world as scripture is applied in the hearts of people. And then as you touched on, Marvin, the, the doxological fruit, the, the fruit of praise and worship that rises up in the heart. So, so that really, when we get down to the two fundamental questions of, of when it comes to God, number one, can we know God? Yes or no. And if the answer is yes, honestly, what, what difference does it make? Well, that's the difference to know God is to be transformed by God. And so, so, so Mike, if that's what happens when we know God, now we got to go back to the primary question can we know God? Because if we can't know God, if we can't have true experiential knowledge of God, then we can't have true experiential transformation in the heart. So Mike, can we know God and how can we know God? Can we know God? Uh, yes, we can know God and we can know God uh, through the study of, of his scriptures. And uh, going through this, this section again uh, earlier this morning, um, how do we do that? Well, first of all, uh, it's the way we approach. We don't approach it by um, studying God as we do other subjects to gain, to, to acquire knowledge on uh, God or information facts, for lack of better words. Wait a second. You're, sh- not gonna, you're not going to put him under a microscope? No. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so uh, the way we don't do have this, one. <laughs> yes, the way we, way we study God is we seek to, to gather information on from 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 himself we he reveals it to us as we we study his word as we read his word he reveals more and more of his of, he reveals more to us of his knowledge about him first of all we've got to understand god is vast i mean i don't want to jump ahead but i mean when you think about who god is that just his vastness and uh, we 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 will never our, our minds could never grasp or fully understand the vast knowledge of who god is but 
we we wait for we 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 approach the, the knowing of God through the reading His Word and letting His Word bring more revelation of of who God is, and therefore by doing that, our it, we approach it with a sincere heart. That knowledge we gain from the reading and studying of His Word uh, allows us to 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 in our in our sanctification process learn more about. Uh, knowing God and having a closer relationship with him by knowing more about God. Um, and I like it. And he kind of says that at the bottom of page 503, we must never study God as we do other subjects mm. that we seek to master. Rather, this, sub, this great subject must master us. We must not study God the way a scientist studies a, a species of fish. We must study the Lord as his disciples. And here's the key thing. We re- must receive his word with meekness, and that's from James. We must proceed in dependency upon Christ, for he alone gives us and he alone gives us an uh, understanding of the true God that delivers from false gods and idols of the world. And that's the way we 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 know him. That's how we know him. And then uh, again, as we talked about in the previous chapter, we should be taking that and applying it to our lives, and and living it and walking it. Um, and uh, so. We do know him, um, and how how is it? It's grounded on God's will. I mean, I, I think this is getting more to the, the answer to the question: how, how do we know him by grounding it on God's will to be known? So we we need to approach our study with the with the open heart and mind that we want to uh, know more about God. We want Him to reveal more to Him. We um, His creation enables that too. Um, by His creation, uh, we're creating the image of God. Uh, it's also, as he lays out uh, another one through general and special revelation by his works um, and of creation and providence. I mean, so there, there are many ways he goes into of how we know God. But I think that in summary, um, I would say, how do we know God? Is it possible? Yes. We play, it's possible to know God because he has made himself known. I mean, that's the key thing. He has made himself known through his revelation. Mm-hmm. Uh, yet we may qualify the statement with two caveats. Our knowledge of God is real, but never exhaustive. I kind of touched on that earlier. And then second, all true knowledge of God is a gift of sovereign grace to sinners. Uh, so that's, I guess that's how we say, how, how do we, can we know God? Is it possible? Yes. And how that's how through the, through the uh, re- receiving of his word and knowing that it's through God and how he, what he reveals to us that we know him and develop our relationship. Right, right. Awesome, Mike. Thank you so much. And Marvin, I just want to kind of toss it over to you to just, you know, Miki talks about the priority of knowing God and he talks about the piety of seeking God. And I just want you to kind of address those, but real quick, I just kind of want to jump in here because another thing he talks about before he talks about those is he talks about the perversity of rejecting God. And I was glad to see that there because when you think about when you we think about the knowledge of God, that this is the highest and the greatest thing that we can attain to as far as our knowledge to know him and to know that the reason, uh, well, not the reason behind it. The reason is just simply to know him, but the effect of knowing him is transformation. So now if you flip that over and you go all the way to the opposite side, what is it then to, to reject God? And I love how Beaky makes the distinction. It's not just rejecting God philosophically as if trying to say God doesn't exist, but we do understand that, that everyone knows God exists. Romans one tells us that they just suppress it in unrighteousness. So, so yes, you have those who would deny God, you know, philosophically and categorically, you know, he doesn't exist. There's not a category for that. He's just not there. But Beaky also talks about denying God 
uh, in the way you live and denying God in your daily life. So you may not deny him, you know, philosophically, you may not say, I don't believe God exists, but in your daily life, you live as if he does. And he has no, um, no bearing on you. I remember David Wells. He always talked about, uh, in his three books he wrote years ago about the weightiness of God and how there's such a, a weightiness of God and there's holiness and all that is communicated and it comes down into our lives. Well, you have people who just, they won't deny God, but they, they live as if he's not there. And so therefore, I mean, you take all of this together. Okay. Here's a fact. Can we know God? Mike already told us, yes, we can know God. And if we do know God, what difference does it make? It transforms our lives. Well, now what happens when someone either denies that there's a God, so they're not actively trying to know God, or they just apathetically don't care. And so they don't live as if God exists. What happens when you come back down to the moral aspect? What what happens when you come down to the to the applied aspect, to the to the transformation aspect? What do you see? Well. I think you see what we see happening in the world today, just outright wickedness, just evil, corruption. This is the fruit culturally and personally that you see in the lives of people that that do not have a true knowledge of God, that do not not only know God just categorically and, and live as if there is a God, but especially that they have not been renewed in their minds and in their hearts have not been regenerated. They've not been saved. And so we see the absolute wickedness of our country society and even people personally i just yeah april just told me yesterday about uh over here at virginia tech that there was some guy on the football team and and shot a bunch of other i think five people and maybe he killed three or killed two and and a, uh, a few a couple are, are still alive i mean who does that and and why do you do that what the fundamental root of it is because you've not had a transformed heart. Your life has not been changed to the degree that you don't do those type of things. You don't commit that type of wickedness. And the root of that is there is no true knowledge of God, no true experiential knowledge of God. So, so I love how Beaky, in essence, brought that out, the perversity of rejecting the triune God. So if that's perverse to, to reject God and not, and not pursue a knowledge of God, well, he talks about the priority of seeking God and the piety of seeking God. So Marvin, if this is so important, what should our priority be? And, and how does that develop piety in the heart? Praise toward God, worship. Well, I don't have much to add to all that, but uh, <laughs> uh, I, I do like I do like what he says on five hundred three, and I think it kind of addresses some of the things you guys have said. Um, the uh, next to last paragraph, he says, therefore, the study of God is full of both potential and peril. We can never be neutral in this great pursuit. Um, Following on what you said, I mean, I, he makes a point that I think that um, that I think we lose with our contemporary language in terms of, as the psalmist says, the fool and it has said in his heart, there is no God. And in terms of being a fool, I mean, um, uh, it is um, uh, it is in slang of an insult word, basically talking about. Uh, more towards a person's knowledge, but um, Beaky makes the point that it is an applied, uh, that a fool basically is taking the knowledge that he, that he has and perverting it. 
Uh, it is more a moral distinction uh, than it is anything else. I think it's a reason why Jesus gave a stern warning about uh, calling someone a fool. I mean, we're very, uh, we're very uh, careful about that. And again, that in our, in 21st century America, that doesn't ring as well as it could, but basically to call someone a fool is to, according to the trajectory of the, of the scriptures is to say um, that they are in an active process of perverting the knowledge of God that they have. They do know there is a God uh, in terms of the existence of God. It's a foregone conclusion. Um, as Van Til, Bonson, and all the guys say, I mean, basically, it is the it is the uh, transcendental uh, prop upon which we understand everything. Uh, we cannot we cannot adequately use language to talk about God except that God exists. Um, not only His existence uh, out there, but to know Him in terms of just, for instance, the the, the framework of language that He talks about here. Um, is really fundamental to that. When he talks about the, um, when he talks about the, um, uh, I'm just myself here. What was it, Van? You had. Uh, possibility of knowing the true God, perversity, rejecting. What was it you had? Uh, oh, his uh, final two oh, the sections. Pri oh, the, pri the priority, priority of and the piety. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the priority of knowing the true God, he says, uh, uh, first, knowing God is the pinnacle uh, of human privilege. Um, and there's a lot we could say about that, and, and I won't. But uh, it is something that, it, it is something that the uh, that the angels are very well uh, well aware of, uh, in terms of having the kind of knowledge, the saving knowledge that we have. Um, it is the pinnacle of human privilege, uh, even though we have done everything we can to forfeit it. Yet to come into that kind of relationship with God is ultimately something uh, of which of the created order we are the only ones uh, whom He has created and in his image in such a way that we can not only know it, but can, but can enter into that relationship by his grace. So it is a, it is a huge privilege, uh, that we ought not to take, that we ought not to take for granted. Um, I like what F.B. Huey says there. Uh, he was old Testament professor at Southwestern when I was there. I never took him, but I uh, wish I had. Uh, he points out that the terms loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in Jeremiah uh, 9.24 reflects both God's attributes and man's piety. Uh, and I think that's a good point in terms of, uh, as God expresses himself in those terms, there is also, uh, as we're going to look at, uh, he's, he's big on talking about the knowledge of God uh, or the language. Uh, is it univocal, equivocal, or is it analogical? Uh, and he ultimately arrives on analogy, which I think is good. But I think Huey is saying that also here as well, that in terms of when God is described with these with these attributes, uh, then again, there is, uh, by analogy, a responsibility for us as well in knowing God, in knowing God and knowing God in this way of understanding these attributes like this, it puts a responsibility or a duty on us to do something with it. Mm -hmm. That's what he says, that to study God either is prosperous or it's perilous. 
and that's it. I mean, the more we study God, the more the more responsibility it puts upon us. So if we look at this as just a as just an intellectual exercise, that's where a lot of people go wrong. And Van, you, I'm sure you saw this as well as I did in your seminary studies. Uh, I saw guys that came in well and didn't finish well. Yeah, uh, because again, I mean, they had entered into this, and that uh, Beaky, as the president of a theological seminary, he sees this as well, uh, and he sees that okay, guys, uh, by God's grace, we're gonna we're gonna uh, uh, we're gonna sit together in a room, and someone who studied these things is very humbly gonna lay these things out before you. He has a, an enormous burden upon him, having learned these things. As he conveys this to you, you accept the torch from him. In other words, as you come to this knowledge, it also puts that liability or that responsibility upon you as well. Um, and, and so that's why he talks about that as being a prior condition for further knowledge of God uh, is the fact uh, that as we come into this, uh, it will either bless us or it will curse us um one or the other uh, there is no neutral stance on that so we ought to always uh we ought to always know that this is the highest and holy privilege that we have uh and that it comes with that uh he, he says knowing god is the heart of the covenant and indeed it is um uh, and i believe in the in the chapter on holiness the holiness of god uh, he does a marvelous job i think of all the readings i was telling mike yesterday I think of all the chapters, I, I thought that was that was probably one of the best ones he did in terms of describing holiness in in that regard uh, as certainly an attribute of God in which he is set apart from us. Uh, he is one and only. He is distinct from us. But that holiness also in relationship and in love, it also it also involves us as well so that any uh, so that any relationship we enter into. Uh, is uh, is a is a holy relationship in the sense that having drawn near to us and having invited us to draw near to him he says he will be found and when we find him uh, we shouldn't be like uh, the old country dog uh, who uh, on, a, on an old dirt road that every car that goes by he there's something genetic in him that wants to get him out there and chase that car dust is flying everywhere the car goes and and, and in his brain he knows okay i'm not going to catch it one day the car stops and, and there he is now he's caught a car what does he do with it and uh it's a it's a crude analogy to talk about the fact that whenever we have sought god um whenever we find him uh it is a special privilege and there are conditions upon which uh Beaky says here the priority is is in our preparation if you will not that we become good enough to know god but that God in his enabling grace, uh, as, as an aspect, as an aspect of his holiness, which not only is a supreme, um, property that enhances all his others, but it also is, as he later says, a communicable attribute in the sense that he calls us to share in that holiness as well, uh, in this life and in, in an imperfect way, but in the life to come, uh, in a pure and a full way. Um, so, he says, knowing God is the essence of eternal life. Uh, it, it is. Um, it, it is the. Um, uh, it, it is. It is eternal life. Uh, it is. Um, 
uh, our means in this life really to know the light, uh, really to know uh, things above. Uh, Paul makes it clear that we are uh, that we are saved, that we're in the heavenlies in, in terms of our position, in terms of our access, in terms of all the privileges as, as his adopted children that we have. Um, it, is, um, it is that uh, which uh, our, our hearts uh, by the new birth are, are in the heavenlies, but being instructed really is uh, knowing more of that and responsibly knowing more of that, it really is the, the case. And then he says that it is the engine of holiness. And I've kind of, kind of already um, addressed that as well. Um, God is holy and calls us to holiness as well. But Beaky says this is the engine of holiness. Uh, how, do, how do we attain to uh, the holiness of God? Uh, not that we shall be holy as he is, but to, it, to the sense that he, he shares with us that attribute and communicates that to us. Um, how do we do that? Uh, and again, it's treated more fully in the chapter on holiness. Uh, but he's, but as he says, uh, the study of God is the engine of holiness. Uh, uh, there again, it's the peril or privilege uh, that he talks about in terms of studying God. Uh, the more we study, the more we understand, the more we understand his holiness. Uh, then he says the, um, the knowledge of God fosters grace and grace and peace says the knowledge of God is both theological and spiritual. Um, and in terms of the piety of seeking to know God, uh, this kind of lays on what you guys said and kind of uh, uh, sets us up. He says, first, we seek to know the Lord through dependent re receptivity. Um, and again, I think this... Uh, there are two aspects here. One is our responsibility. Yes, God has taken the initiative to making himself known and more particularly of making himself known in Christ. Uh, but uh, there is a process of sanctification in which walking with him and gaining more knowledge of, of him uh, really is to uh, is to, in one sense, to be passive, deceptive, uh, dependent receptivity just means that uh, God gives to us that God gives to us the means of grace to know him. And we must be in humility. Uh, we must be ready to receive those. Uh, secondly, he says, we seek to know the Lord through humble repentance. Again, going on what I just said there, uh, repentance here in this, in this sense, uh, in the biblical sense of the word, obviously, uh, means to, means to understand, uh, is to understand our sins uh, and to turn away from them. Uh, it is an intellectual and an ethical action. Uh, and Beaky says, in order in order to really know God in the way that He's about to set Him up here, even if He uses sometimes theological categories to do that, uh, He says, in order to enter into that study in a profitable way and not in a destructive way, uh, we must understand that the more God discloses of him, like Isaiah does in Isaiah six, the more we understand, uh, our own, our own, uh, moral filthiness before him. And we must repent. And then he says, thirdly, we must seek to know the Lord through Christ centered faith. 
Um, and, and that really is the sum uh, of all these things. Uh, ultimately, the knowledge of God comes to Christ-centered faith. It comes to the place to where we understand uh, Christ as the ultimate, as the ultimate revelation. Uh, as Jesus says of himself, he has seen me, has seen the Father. Uh, what a wonderful uh, but scandalous statement that was to his hearers in that day. You have seen me, have seen, have seen the Father in terms of eternal uh, in terms of eternal glory um, and, uh, and and majesty, uh, in uh, five fourteen and first paragraph, in Christ the glory of God's grace and truth has appeared. Therefore, we must continually exercise faith in Christ as the mediator and chief prophet of the go of the covenant of grace, in order to grow in our knowledge of God. Uh, and that's so important, I, I think, uh, and that's a point that Beaky makes again and again, um, really to know, uh, and particularly as we get into the modern era in terms of trying to find categories for religious knowledge, or more specifically, understanding God and explaining God, uh, it ultimately lands, it ultimately lands on Christ and in our relationship with him. Uh, and there's a, a lot to be said there. Uh, and then fourth, he says, uh, we seek to know God through holy desire. Uh, we must desire to know him. Uh, God says he who, he who seeks me and uh, with all his heart will find me. Um, and so there is that element of desire there. Again, it is, uh, um, I don't know if it's in this section. Actually, it is right below there. Uh, he, he talks about, and, and I'll end with this, uh, he talks about um, uh, Jonathan Edwards and uh, the holy pleasure he, he has in the knowledge of God. Le, uh, bottom of 514, last partial paragraph there. He says, when a theologian contemplates God, sometimes he forgets himself. The greatest gift of God's love is to know his loveliness. And I love that. The greatest gift of God's love is to know his loveliness. In other words, the more we get to know him in that covenantal personal relationship, the more we understand how lovely he is. Um, Edward says that it was the subject of meditation and joy for him uh, in hours on end. Uh, it is the theological basis, uh, uh, Dan, as you've introduced us to the works of John Piper, is the theological basis upon um, uh, uh, upon which uh, Piper uh, calls the modern church in order to envelop uh, and to gain this vision of God is lovely. Uh, the aesthetic uh, value of knowing him who is indeed holy and apart and above all else, uh, to know that not only is he uh, in inapproachable glory in a sense that uh, no man may approach him, but I, below, I love the analogy he uses about Moses in this. Uh, he, he talks about Moses encounter with God and God had to find as God passed by, uh, he, he, he shielded himself, uh, from the glory of God, lest he die. But yet he saw the back parts of God. Uh, and in that, uh, Beaky says, there's a lot, there's a lot to be said and to be known about that in that deep, deep experience of the holiness of God and the loveliness of God, uh, even in the back parts of that. I think is what we would call his revelation to us, uh, the means that he's taken to do that. We cannot know him in his fullness and his essence in this life uh, and in eternity, uh, I would say. And Ben, I know you've taught this as well. 
uh, is that his inexhaustible glory and loveliness will be the subject of eternal uh, research, <laughs> of eternal study. Uh, God will never be exhausted by our observations or our study. Uh, and that will be, that should be the earnest desire of heaven uh, is really uh, to find he who loves our soul and to, uh, and to know everything about him and not be distracted by sin and the world's, and the world's endeavors, um, just as uh, we engage in that relationship with our wives, but yet the world calls apart and the world, the world with its duties and all keeps us from that very vital relationship that we have in eternity, God's loveliness will, will be the subject of that. And I, I think that's why he sets this, that Beaky sets this up like this is to, is to prepare the heart for this. Because again, the God that we're going to find, if we study him rightly and study him using the means of grace that he has and study him with uh, humble re receptivity, the God that we find there is more than worthy to be worshiped. He is more lovely than anything we know. We understand why his his holiness and his greatness and his majesty uh, is such that he demands worship of it because it is that which is most glorious and fundamental to everything. Uh, not to worship the God whom we find there really is, is, to, uh, is not only to sin, but it is also really to put a formidable roadblock in our way of trying to know him further. So it was a great section, I thought. All right. Thank you, brother. Appreciate that. Yes. The priority of knowing God and, and then also the piety, you know, how we go about to know God. So let's shift gears real quick and, uh, having or knowing God, you know, what do we know about God? And so Beaky goes now into the next chapter, uh, which he titles an introduction to God's nature and attributes. So in other words, what are we going to talk about God's nature, what he is and his attributes who he is. And he divides this up really. It's one long chapter, but he divides it into two chapters. Part one, he's going to start where he needs to start, which is the biblical teaching. And then part two, he's going to talk about theological issues associated with uh, God's nature and God's attributes when we talk about those two things. So, so for the sake of time, I just want to, uh, toss it over to you, Mike. And, uh, and, and he, he gives us, let's see, one, two, three, four, four different passages that discuss God's nature and his attributes, Exodus 34, Psalm 145, Jeremiah nine, first Timothy chapter one, first uh, Timothy, um, chapter six. And, uh, and, and Mike, if you'll just pick one of those and kind of, kind of address it biblically and, um, uh, and talk about what what does that certain passage say about God's nature and God's attributes? And we'll just we'll just do one for the sake of time. But but as you're thinking about which one you're going to dive into, Mike, I just want to kind of set the set the table with some definitions that Beaky gives here because these are really foundational for trying to understand and get our minds and hearts around uh, God's nature what he is, you know, if we can say that, what he is, we're trying to understand the the being of God. So that's why we describe it with a, what, you know, his nature, but then also his attributes, which describe who he is. So uh, at the bottom of page 519, I'll just read this straight out here as, as Beaky has it, because he, he talks about these different words. So he says this, in speaking of God, theologians have employed a variety of terms, including attributes, perfections, virtues, properties, and excellencies. 
Those are some good theological words, right? <laughs> Seminary words right there. Anyway, attributes, he says, are qualities or characteristics that are closely and permanently associated with someone and that can be used to identify him. So that's what an attribute is. Something that is closely associated with someone, we can identify that person. You know, Mike, I could talk about you. And in talking about you, I would give a list of your attributes that would really identify who you are. He goes on to say, thus, we are speaking of what philosophers have called essential attributes as opposed to accidental qualities, not necessary to the very essence or nature of the thing described. In other words, Mike, if I was talking about you, I could give a lot of things about you that aren't essential to who you are. In other words, you, you could be this for a day, you could be this for a week, you could be this for a month or two, and, and then you know you could not be that. But yet it doesn't change who you are fundamentally. You are still Mike Thompson. Mike Thompson, who is this, 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 and this? So we can still identify. So what he's saying here is he goes on to say this. He says, God has no accidental qualities. And it's not like an accident, like a traffic accident. It means something that's that's not not required, not essential to who you are. That's that's what an accident technically is. So he says yeah, God has an Aristotelian word. Yeah, exactly. God has no accidental qualities. All of his attributes are essential attributes. He cannot cease to possess any of his attributes without ceasing to be God. And that's why, as I've said sometimes in sermons, and I'm sure, you know, even as I said this, I probably didn't define it as, as I should, you know, uh, God is his attributes. Uh, for God not to have one of his attributes would be for God not to be God, because all of them are essential. None of them are accidental. We can't say, okay, here's an attribute of God, uh, you know, just to put it in street language, you know, he was this for three months, but he's not this now. God can't do that. God is who he is. His nature is fixed, what he is, his in his being, who he is, his attributes, they are fixed. To change one of his attributes would be to change who he is, and to change who he is would change who God is, and now everything crumbles like a house of cards. So so he is his attributes. So one more thing, Mike, and I'll toss it over to you. On okay. the next page, 520, he says this. He says, God's attributes are also called his perfections to highlight that he has every good and admirable quality to the highest degree. They're also sometimes called his virtues from the Latin word virtus for excellence. Less commonly, one might speak of God's properties in the sense of things that are proper to him as God. God's essential properties are common to all three persons of the Godhead, whereas his personal properties, again, the difference between essential properties and personal properties, whereas his personal properties address the distinctions between or among the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the Trinity. Finally, calling God's attributes his excellencies emphasizes the divine and perfect qualities reflected in each attribute. For the sake of clarity and consistency, Beaky says, we would generally use the term attributes, which most, most people do, most theologians do. We would generally use the term attributes for God's essential perfections, virtues, properties, and excellencies. So, so that gives us kind of a working description of those words. And again, we want to come back to the fundamentals of, of, of nature and attributes, God's nature, what he is in, in his being, you know, in other words, we have to have something 
before we describe what that something is. And, and so that's when we talk about his nature, we're talking about, you know, if we can say in these words about God, we're talking about that something, this is, is, is what God is. And now with his attributes, now we can describe what, who God is, who that, what thing is. So again, it's, it's hard to use human language and that it almost seems true to talk about God, but these are the, the distinctions uh, we need to make in our mind. And I know Marvin with his philosophical mind can bring a whole lot more to the table, all those that I ever could. But before we do that, and before we get to talk about theological issues, philosophical issues and all that, where we need to start is we need to start with scripture. So Mike, Scripture does describe God in his nature and his attributes. Beaky has listed out four of those. Brother, take us into one of those passages, please. Okay, I'll take us into one, but I, I, I um, <clears throat> in my reading, and maybe I, hopefully I've got this straight, because I, I was talking to Marvin yesterday, and we started getting into the, the divinity and the holiness and how God revealed himself to Moses. I, I want, you know, I said, I, I I've, I want to make sure, you know, I, I, I'm in my mind, uh, trying to reflect on what I've read. I, I'm, I'm hoping that that I, I'm, I'm bringing all this together and in, in how the how Beaky uh, is to, uh, relaying it for us. But uh, I think to start off, it's all about God's divinity. God's divinity, I think, is, is like a, uh, encompasses all these these uh, uh, as we are looking at these the, the biblical testimony of His uh, attributes. And so I think that's important to remember is God, God's divinity. And so I, I'll, in the, in, on page 525, he, he uh, mentions Jeremiah 924, 10, 6, and 10, and 12. And that, the, um, that uh, knowing God's attributes as we study and know God's attributes, it really, <clears throat> and, and, and we're living these, we're, we're there, it's, uh, we're, we're, uh, it's his, is his, um, disciples is his children is his ambassadors we should be uh we should be living and reflecting these so the attributes of god that we should be reflecting in our lives distinguishes us from the uh from the simple world and so that's mm-hmm. that's the key thing he brings out first and foremost and when he when he starts with jeremiah um and he um and this is in jeremiah and he references that i am lord which exercise loving kindness Loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth for these things I delight in. Um, so, uh, it, <clears throat> uh, so in this text, it's a, it's a, to me, it's, and, and he says it's a declaration of the, of the divine lordship of, um, uh, of a moral perfection. I mean, it's, uh, it, he has in conjunction with the moral attributes, we also find the revelation of divine affection and things I delight in. So mm-hmm. we see that he delights in these things. What are these things he delights in? He delights in uh, the loving kindness, judgment and righteousness, these things he delights in. And so I think that that highlights uh, more about who our, who God is uh, and how we should be reflecting, you know, our, our father. I mean, we, we should be re- our Father, uh, Heavenly Father, we should be reflecting His His characteristics, His essence, His attributes, uh, and then He goes on, and um, uh, the um, comparing the the individuals who reject these attributes or do not live these, He compares them to um, uh, attacking the stupidity of the nation for worshiping powerless objects made by man. So you know we have this divine God, uh, and so why why do we choose not to 
to worship him and we and people choose to worship uh, powerless objects. Um, and he says, by way of contrast, it lifts up the incomparable Lord who is great, mighty, true, living, everlasting, mm. wrathful, wise, and a wise creator. So, I mean, to me, it, it's uh, the God, our, our, our one true God. I mean, he, he's, he's great. He's greater. He's mightier. He's more knowledgeable. Uh, he's more love, uh, ever loving. Um, he, um, he, he's just, he's living. And mm. so it contrasts uh, the uh, following a, a living, righteous, glorious, loving God versus that of the falling of, 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 as he uses a powerless object uh, is um, something that, that we should, we should, um, I, um, should be knowledgeable. So do we want to follow man or do we want to follow a true God with these characteristics that we see? And I think the characteristics, again, reinforce to us his divinity, his truth, and that we are following a true and righteous God. And uh, so our choice is, do we want to find, uh, do we want to follow a true, uh, a true and everlasting and, and divine, a uh, divine God? And, and I, I just, I go back, I mean, these, these, more, these chapters we read towards the end. I mean, I'm still processing them, but I mean, when, when mm-hmm. you think of God's divinity and how vast it is compared with uh, his holiness, what we'll get into, mm-hmm. I mean, we should be looking at that and preparing our hearts and minds in, against everything we do and preparing ourselves for prayer, for worship, for fellowship. I mean, it, to me, it, it was just, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's three chapters, but it's, it's, it's a lot to take a hold of. If, yeah. if that, uh, I hope I've uh, adequately... Uh, shared what you what you're looking for in the scripture <laughs> absolutely absolutely let me just ask you mike before we move on uh, what you just said at the end how do we lose sight of that how, how do we treat these things as just so common so often why do we do that i mean these things are so high and lifted up i mean i mean we we just we're talking about the true knowledge of god sometimes we we just forget god who, who he is and in, in all that he is don't you think I would agree. I think, uh, I think that is very true. And we've got to be disciplined and watch. Mm. I think a lot of it, there's a lot of noise out there in the world and we, and a lot of new toys. And sometimes we've got to say, you know, here are the boundaries, no new toys uh, uh, because they take your time away. I mean, what you spend the majority of your time on is really your idol. So, I mean, yeah. if it's, if it's on a social media site constantly, man, uh, that's your idol. You're, it's taking time away from the, from from studying, praying, living, and uh, and walking in 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 the in the in the light of the Lord. I mean, it's uh, that's what you got to be focused on. And uh, you so you got to have boundaries. Uh, it goes back, like I guess, to the um, the vastness of the example you mentioned earlier. But he's also mentioned it. You take a little girl that's on a on, on the beach, and she mm. looks out there, and she just sees, man, you know, it's big. Well, it's it's more than big. I mean, you, we we have no idea the depth of the ocean, the, the number of the grains of sand. I mean, we're just a t- very very tiny. We're not, you know, minuscule particle uh, of the bigger picture of what we see. And so, I think it's just the noise around us um, um, distracts us and pulls us away from mm. from considering the holiness and the divinity of God. Um, and then we, 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 we need to set personal boundaries. We need to understand that, that a Christ-centered life is our focus, is our goal. Not, not having a, 
uh, a Facebook Christ-centered life, not having a Twitter or all those other things. Our, wow. our Christ, our, center, our, our life should be centered on the Word of God and His exactly. truth. Exactly. Exactly. And then I think it just comes right back to this, you know, our, our, our knowledge of God, because, and again, knowledge of God, true knowledge of God transforms us. It changes us. And, and I think part of that is, is reflected in what we value. Uh, you know, all of us have a true knowledge of a million dollars, right? So, and, and for some reason, we seem not to lose sight of that. So if you told someone, hey, you know, uh, you need to focus on that million dollars over there for three solid days, say off of Twitter, say off social media, focus on it, and then you can have it after three days. I mean, most people would be laser beam locked in, you know, because they, they have the true experiential knowledge of that million dollars and there's value in that. They put value in that. So that's going to affect how they live and transform how they live. Well, I just, before we move, move on, because we want to get to some of these theological issues and, uh, and Dr. Marvin Jones, I'm coming to you. When I read this, this section, we're going to look at here. I was like, Marvin's got to hit that univocal, equivocal, analogical. And so I want yeah. to hear you on that, but I think there's something very, very important we need to talk about. And this actually sort of came up in our discipleship group when we were talking about, uh, church history and we were talking about doctrine and how God can be talked about, how God can be described. But Beakey says on page 527, under the section of biblical approach to studying God's attributes, I want to read those first two paragraphs. I think this is very important. He says this, although some philosophers and theologians have attempted to deduce God's attributes from creation or from self-evident principles of the mind, we are not seeking to build a natural theology. Instead, we aim to build a systematic perspective on God's nature based upon what he reveals about himself in his word. This approach entails the following principles, and he's going to give uh, a few of those, but I just want to read the first one because I think this is very important. He says this, first, the attributes of God are revealed through biblical words and doctrines. God has given us specific words to describe him, such as power, wisdom, and goodness. We use such terms with explicit biblical warrant. Those such terms do not appear in the Bible they accurately summarize what it teaches about God. And then if you go down to the final sentence of the paragraph, he really hits the punch of what he's talking about. He says this, we should not fear to use terminology not explicitly found on the pages of the Holy Scriptures if such terms truly express the doctrines of God's word. And that gets into the subject that we talked about at our discipleship group. Uh, it, it's called biblicism, where you have a, a true, and I know a lot of people get accused of being biblicist, but true biblicism is in essence saying, we can't say anything about God. We can't say anything about Jesus. We can't say anything about all of these doctrines of scripture that is not explicitly stated in scripture. So it's almost like saying the only way we can describe God is only and simply with a Bible verse. We can't we can't bring other explanation to it with words that are not found in Scripture. So I, I love what Beaky is saying there. Beaky is saying, no, we can do that. And I would submit to you, and I think Beaky actually says it, we have to do this. We have because we have questions and questions need to be answered. And we can't give answer to all of these questions with just simply and only and exclusively the words of scripture. There has to be a filling out, a connecting of the dots, an explanation. And we have to uh, 
pull from different resources and and marvin i mean you you know this brother you you've got your your advanced training in this you have philosophical resources we need categories we need we, we need file cabinets in which we can we can ground and put into these categories and cabinets our ideas of who god is that do arise from the text of scripture and so so that is fundamental and that is essential and i believe we need that and so and that really dovetails into this this uh this category of our knowledge of god because some people would say again Vicky's going to go into theological objections people are going to say okay you say you can know god how can you know something that is infinitely higher than you you can't know him and so and there are questions i mean we would say can we know god like god knows god absolutely not if if you're going to know god like god knows himself you would have to be god and so we can't know him that way. So if we can't know him that way and we can't know him to such a manner as he knows himself, well, how can we know him? So Marvin, Dr. Jones, I want to slide this discussion over to you because Beaky does bring up these three terms. We don't hear them every day. It's just not common parlance, but equivocal, univocal, and analogical. Brother, help us figure out what those are. Okay. Uh, well, I know we're we're getting short on time, so I'll try to be brief. Uh, the what he's talking about here is probably in terms of uh, reflection of the image of God and reflection of the creativity that comes with that creativity. In the sense, not in the sense that God creates, but in the sense that He calls us to be stewards and uh, and to cultivate the earth. And, and there's a creativity that's involved with that. Uh, we see that all. We see that all the time. Language is the primary means of that. Um, and what he's talking about there, it, it and again, it goes along with his theme of the priority of the Word of God. Uh, is that language? Uh, is that language uh, that God uses with us, and that we use as the the uh, ground or the platform upon which we we know God? Uh, it, it inevitably is subject to interpretation. Uh, we have to, um, um, for instance, Van, if I told you, okay, using your million dollar analogy, I'm going to say, uh, Van, I will endow you with a million dollars. Well, if you take that, if you take that in, in a way, um, that is, uh, that is within your experience, uh, you would, you would think, well, I'm about to fork over or, or stuff into your bank, bank account, uh, a million dollars. Well, in that sense, in my, it, the way I use the word is I'm using it in a, an ultimate or a future sense of basically an estate or a will or something like that. That gets to the heart of the language that the Bible uses and how do we understand ourself in relationship to that uh, un univocal, uh, uh, an univocal uh, use of language uh, just simply says uh, that the language that let's take the Bible for instance the language the Bible uses about God uh, is language uh, that even when it describes God is a language that uh, that we have a, uh, that we have accessibility to in other words, whatever attributes or whatever the Bible says about itself uh, is we can be sure that the way in which we know it is the way that God meant it. 
that our knowledge of that term or that our knowledge of that attribute of that concept is the same as God's. Now, again, it's a very confident and optimistic, and some would say even a, uh, uh, an arrogant, uh, idea there that, um, uh, uh, that the language we share with God is such that he reveals everything through the use of language and that our receptivity of it basically is the same as God. So as Biki rightly says, I mean, the language that God uses here is not, uh, is not univocal in the sense that, um, in the sense that we both, uh, we both are using the same language, but we're not using the same concepts perhaps uh, uh, as sometimes well and, and again going back to uh, going back to our experience in Scotland uh, the, the last the last experience we had was a was a cab was a cab driver who took us to the airport uh, and we heard some pretty heavy Scottish brogues on the way uh, in, in our time there. But this guy, uh, I, I'm thinking to myself as I hear him talk, I'm hearing every word, but I don't know that I understand a single sentence. <laughs> in, 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 in other words, uh, there would be, in terms of univocal, I would have to have a better understanding of that. Um, equivocal, uh, e e well, equivocal, uh, uh, well, equivocal, I, I got that backwards. Actually, univocal means that, uh, uh, it, it, as you were suggesting, Van, that uh, that there is no common ground between our knowledge and God. So essentially, whatever God says, there's a gap or a bridge between us. Uh, equivocal does say that the way that God, uh, the way that God uses language is the same way we do. And of course, it's subject to uh, the same limit, the same limitations that we just talked about. Uh, Beaky prefers to talk about language here as analogical in the sense that um, it is understandable. Uh, it is uh, by analogy or by accommodation it is stepped down to us in such a way uh, that we can understand that we can understand it in a way that is profitable for us. Um, it draws upon the idea of analogy and basically analogy is, the fundamental way that we understand the difficult parts of scripture. Um, we are sometimes drawn, uh, as the theologians say, to the analogy of faith uh, in tough passages of scripture, understanding that we compare different ways that God has spoken and we draw all this together and by analogy, we come to the right conclusion. Um, it just says that being created in the image of God, that there is a common use of language that we share with God, such as, such as he can communicate with us uh, in, in a way uh, that is sure and certain, uh, not exhaustive, uh, but is sure and certain uh, in a way then that, uh, uh, that by analogy uh, is proper. Now, the greatest analogical device I have uh, uh, is the watch on my arm here. I'm looking at it and see, and seeing that we're running, we're, that we're running late here. Uh, but again, in terms of the time that I derive from that, uh, it is analogical. Uh, there is a, there is a perfect time out there somewhere. Uh, I'm, I'm told well, they that call it uh Greenwich mean time. Greenwich mean. Greenwich so what mean. it was in the military, right? Mike? GMT, yes. Right? yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
Actually, actually, I, I think if we were not in Greenwich mean, we were very close to it in our time in Scotland. Mm. Uh, Greenwich does, does run through, uh, the Greenwich village of, of London. So, but anyway, uh, there is a perfect time out there, um, and a standard by which it's assessed. And my watch says it's a certain time within the mind of God. I mean, in terms of history, I mean, there is a, there is a perfect time. There is a precision of standard down to uh, a degree that we cannot attain to precision. And that's kind of the way language and analogical use of language says as well. Uh, it is enough to understand, but it is not exhaustive. And so in that sense, then our responsibility uh, is by analogy, using, using the language, taking it seriously, uh, understanding the, the different genres of, of language uh, uh, is to examine in such a way that we faithfully using that form. And that means that God has given to us. We faithfully understand it. And in difficult passages, we compare uh, one against the, the other, believing that in that analogy um, that God is consistent. Uh, he is reasonable uh, and that he is communicable. He is, desires to communicate with us in such a way that if we desire to know, he'll, he'll teach us. Uh, and so it, it is always an approximation, but yet in the important things that pertain to salvation, it is sufficient. That knowledge is sufficient to save us. Uh, but again, being an approximation or being an analogy means that we are all the more mm -hmm. diligent to give it the rigor that it means in order that we adequately understand it. Just because we can't attain to a full knowledge does not relieve us of the responsibility of throwing up our hands and surrendering. Uh, God can be known, and he's given us a means uh, to do that. Um, at the, the criticism that, well, if we use human language, I mean, we can never be exact. Again, I think he does a good job of answering that. Mm -hmm. But in the analogical use of language, I think there's a good, there's a good use of that there. Okay. Excellent, brother. Thank you so much. Now, in 10 minutes or so, we get to talk about the name of God and the holiness of God. How in the world can we make this happen? But we'll, uh, we'll, we'll give it a stab just so we won't make this overly long. And let's just address this by, uh, first of all, let's, let's just talk about the name of God. And uh, we'll, we'll just all give maybe just a, a couple of observations there concerning that. And then we'll break over to the holiness of God. I know one of R.C. Sproul's most favorite topics yeah. in all the world to talk about, and we'll do the same there. And then we'll wrap up our discussion. But but just to kick it off, uh, uh, the name of the Lord, what is the name of the Lord? His self-described name in scripture is Yahweh. And that comes from the Hebrew letters, whereas we transliterate those into into English, it would be YHWH. And that is that is known as the uh tetragrammaton. And uh and and the word Jehovah comes from that uh that word. Jehovah is the uh, uh the putting in of the vowels into the original Hebrew. Before the Masoretic text, the uh Hebrew had no uh it was only consonants. There were no vowels that were put in. And so and, and uh, uh, if I can interrupt it was yeah. it was it was basically put in there for the, for the sake of pronunciation as the rabbi would, would read it. Um, right. and so there was that element of communication there as well. If you can learn the vowel points, it, it, it helps. So you're right. I mean, originally they're not there. Right. Right. And I, and I think, and, and maybe 
y'all can comment on this. I, I think some people make, you know, they overstate the case on the name because they would, they would basically trash the saying of Jehovah and saying that basically we're defiling the name of God, that we do that. And we need to, we need to keep it as God, even Lord, they would say, you know, we're, 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 we're taking it down a few notches by addressing it as Lord, which is odd because even the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses the word kurios for all those places where we see the word Yahweh. So even the Septuagint uh, defines it as Lord. And as we know, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is the translation that our Lord used as he addressed Scripture. And so I think those are very important things to think about. Let me just read a couple of things here. Beaky says on 552, and I'll just toss it over to you guys for a couple of observations, and then we'll move on to the holiness of God. But he says this, talking about the name of God, the name Yahweh, he says, God's name reveals that his being is very different from that of other persons. When a human being says, I am, he qualifies it with a predicate often with some relationship to other people that defines his status or role. So we could say, you know, Mike, Tom, we can never just say Mike Thompson is, we got to fill that in with something. Mike Thompson is great. Mike Thompson is awesome. Mike Thompson is this, Mike Thompson is that. Uh, Marvin Jones is, is, is bright. Marvin Jones is smart. Marvin Jones is knowledgeable. So, so there has to be something, but with God, he doesn't do that. There's nothing that qualifies his relationship. So therefore he just is. And then Mickey goes on to say this. However, God simply said, I am asserting that though he has, he has relationships and he does, he is not defined by any relationship outside of his own being, but exists of himself. God is thus the sovereign Lord. The name I am teaches that essence or being belongs to God in a unique and absolute manner that Marvin, is there anybody else who can say that about themselves? Uh, no, not rightly. <laughs> you can't, you, you can, but you can be subject to, uh, to, uh, Scott, to Scottish male, uh, communication. <laughs> yeah. You, yeah. You got to, uh, Mike knows you get the business about it. Uh, uh, no, I mean, it's a great point because it, I am it basically, as you say, it's a stative verb, which means that, uh, it will either, it, it either anticipates a, uh, an adjective or it anticipates a verb of some kind. In other words, to describe it of us, it is incomplete to just leave that steady verb hanging without actually putting something there. Um, and not so with God, uh, there is, uh, there's that aspect of God there, uh, that in saying that, uh, there is a timelessness there with that. Uh, but I love also what, Beaky, what goes on to say on 553, uh, first paragraph, he says, I am could also be translated, I will be, yeah. suggesting continuity through time. And I think yeah. it's not that he is an abstract, unknowable entity in the Greek sense of the term, as Plato would say. Uh, but no, he is uh, uh, being, uh, being in time, but not being of time to say that I will be suggests this element that Beaky says is absolutely essential to understanding God is the covenant relationship there. Uh, it's something that God has voluntarily entered into, um, and it is that way through which he relates to us. And so at that point, as he, through time, relates to us, we can, as you said, we can, with absolute de dependency, uh, with absolute certainty, we, we, can, we can depend on that. Um, and... Um, yeah, it's at the same time. It is. It, it is the uh, 
to say I am and, and to use that term itself in an untranslatable way and to use Van, as you said, Adonai or some other uh, way to indirectly express that and to maintain the holiness of, of that name, uh, even to this day with the Jews, um, it does not fully understand, as Jesus says uh, to the Pharisees, you think you know the scriptures, but they speak of me. Mm. And so the I am statements of Jesus and the gospels, again, were not lost upon them, uh, upon the Pharisees and upon his enemies, because they understood exactly what he was saying. Uh, they were, uh, Jesus was in that sense, then using that stative verb and then supplying it himself, not in an exhaustive way, but to exegete, as John says in John 1, to exegete uh, the father through him. In other words, to draw him out before us. Um, so again, that, uh, the, the trend there is more and more, uh, that God reveals himself and through Christ reveals himself in such a way, uh, that blows our mind to, to use, uh, mm. to use an incomplete term. Absolutely. So Mike Beaky says this name, Yahweh, I am, I am that I will be, I am that I am. It is, uh, it is the Lord's name. It is a great name. It is a mysterious name. So brother, what, what do you have to share on that? Okay. So um, when you think about, you know, I am, and it goes back to what we've been saying, but I think of myself, uh, I am the son of, you know, Michael Thompson, who is the son of this, and, you know, uh, the Bible goes through the lineage and like that, but with, with God, when God first uh, answered Moses, he just said, I am, which indicates he has no beginning. He has no boundaries. Uh, he, and, and again, this is not just, it, it's the Trinity. It's God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit uh, are, are, are not bound by time, are not bound by uh, any circumstances. They, they are the, he is the divine God, the one and only God who was in the past, the present and the future. And as such, you know, it talks, it, it really it talks of the significance of his lordship and, the, and his faithfulness, his covenantal faithfulness as we go through time. And it, it, it brings out things that we, you know, we can trust God. He is faithful. He's going to do what he's saying. And I, we get that through his word. So he is faithful. Uh, what are some others that he highlights? And I, I thought it was just um, the his sovereignty. He, he's a, he's independent. He's not dependent upon any, anything else, anybody else. He, he is, um, uh, um, he is faithful. He is, um, um, he is trustworthy. I mean, it goes in, it, it just think, when you think of, uh, of I am, it's just like um, uh, there is no other. And if we approach uh, God like that in our prayers and in our walk, and we remember that he's not an ordinary person like us, he, mm -hmm. he, uh, he is, uh, he is sovereign. He is our Lord. If we remember that and, and, and keep that at the, at the front of our mind and how we approach things, I do not think it's disrespectful to, to use the term, you know, Yahweh. I, I, I think it's, it, it impresses upon us, hey, here's a great, loving, kind God that we have, our Father. And that's how we need to look at him. And so when we approach him in prayer, approach him in worship, we need to look at him in that aspect. Mm, excellent. Excellent. 
Yeah, thinking about these relationships, this it's weird how things just come into your head. This, this, oh, these were the pre-salvation days way back in the 80s. And this old rap, which I don't like rap music, but this rap from Run DMC <laughs> hits my mind. And they they uh how did it go? It went uh uh oh, it went, uh, I am the son of Byford, brother of Al. Betty's my mammy and Run is my pal. It's McDaniels, not McDonald's. These rhymes are Daryl's. Those but burgers are Ronald's. <laughs> See, you hear anything when you listen yeah. to these. Now, I wonder who's going to make it all the way. See, this is how we can find out if anyone's listening. If someone makes it all the way to this podcast and here's that. But anyway, so yeah, all those are, are relationships. But see, God God can't say that. And I mean, he has relationships, but his his essence, who he is, his nature does not consist of his relationships. He is described without those in his being and in his essence. So well, oh, I can, boy, if, I, if I can very quickly, uh, <laughs> okay, I, think this, I think this falls within uh, Beaky's classifications. He uh, prefers to divide the attributes of God, reflects the uh, lordship and love or majesty and moral excellence. Mm. And I think as we see, yeah. uh, as we see that name, then we see both those manifested. Uh, his lordship, uh, in the sense that he is uh, he is eternal, unapproachable. Uh, his love, in the sense that he has uh, condescended at the same time uh, by Moses to begin with, and uh, or, or has uh, or even with Abraham has condescended to enter into covenant with us. Um, so, uh, Majesty, uh, let's see, Majesty and moral excellence. Amen. Amen. All right. Holiness. Let me kick it off with the meaning of holiness. So we'll try to do this just in a, a few minutes. So uh, let me say this and I'll kick it over to you guys. Any observations, comments about what Beaky said, or just the holiness of God in general, but, but just to define it, Beaky has a section titled the meaning of holiness on the bottom of page 567. And he says this, that which is holy or sacred stands apart or else has been set apart or separated from all that is common, ordinary, profane, or unclean in human experience. And then he goes on to say the foundation of the doctrine of God's holiness is laid in the Old Testament. So, so when we think of holiness, and Beaky talks about this, we think, think of two separate things. A lot of times the emphasis has just been put on, Beaky says, moral purity, that, that something that is holy is morally pure. But, but the case he makes is that what well, and we need we need to hold to that, but what we need to think about even more than that is not just something that's morally pure, but something that is totally other than, something that is totally uh, set apart, something that is totally, in this sense, uh, you could use the term sanctified, you know, talking about a, a positional sanctification, not like we grow in holiness, not a progressive sanctification. So this is something that's totally, totally set apart. So when we talk about God, God is just totally other. He is totally holy. He's totally set apart. And of course, with that, there's the moral purity that God has. But the main thrust is that he is set apart. He is totally set apart from his creation, from who we are, everything. He is the one that is set apart. So what do y'all have to, uh, to, to add to that? You want me to go oh. first? Either sure. one. Go ahead. Marvin. Oh, Okay. <laughs> Uh, well, he, uh, I, I think, I think what you said is, is absolutely right. But again, in terms of the holiness as a communicable attribute, again, 
we talk about communicable and incommunicable. It was a, a, a way that uh, a, a lot of theologians talk about it. But in terms of holiness, uh, of course, God himself is set apart. Uh, but he also designates uh, he also designates his own or those whom he has chosen. He designates them as holy as well. And I, I love the type that he uh, mentions there in uh, in the uh, uh, in the worship of, of Israel in terms of the, the high priest. Uh, part of his uh, every every part of his uh, wardrobe is typical, but uh, the headband that he wore, holy to the Lord. Uh, mm. now, he he himself is not holy. He himself is not perfect. But again, he's been set apart for God for a particular reason, uh, within certain parameters, within certain guidelines, and within those, uh, God uses him in in that regard. So um, I, I think that there is that relationship uh, there uh, to where, um, and again, I, I know we're running out of time and I, I can't find it, but uh, he says that this is the fundamental assurance that we have that even in our incomplete and sometimes sinful states, uh, that God will not destroy us uh, because mm. he has set us apart. We are holy unto him. Mm. Uh, and that, uh, and that uh, to destroy us really uh, is, to, is to be untrue uh, to uh, the holiness that he has revealed to us. It, it is his own sovereign condescension to do that. But having mm. done that, then he is committed to the end to see that. Mm-hmm. And he is powerful to bring it exactly. about. Right? Absolutely. Full of pity, joined with power, as the old hymn writer yeah. says. Amen, brother. Amen. Mike? I, I guess there was one thing that I that I highlighted. That, and, and, you know, again, there's there's a lot towards the end, but uh, it has a quote in there from A.A. A. Uh, Hodge. I believe I pronounced mm-hmm. his name. He said, the holiness of God is not to be conceived as one, of, uh, as one attribute among others. It is a rather a general term representing the, the conception of his uh, consum- uh, consummate perfection, his, his, his perfection and his total glory. And then I yeah. liked it. And then, so I like that, but I also like it when you get into, you know, God is holy, but he said, I am holy. Therefore you, uh, I am holy. The, uh, see, be ye holy for I am holy, you know? Uh, so, I mean, I, we were set apart too, but you know, we'll never attain the holiness of God. But we're called to be holy as well. And, uh, and it goes into some uh, personal holiness and what that is and what that entails. But I mean, it's, we have a perfect example. He's, he's uh, in his holiness and in his glory. And uh, that's something that we as his children need to ascribe to, to work towards as part. And I think it was a you or Marvin mentioned the sanct- holiness as far as we go through the sanctification process. Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I agree with you on that quote from A.A. Hodge. I thought that was that encapsulated the whole truth, the whole truth of the chapter, I think, uh, in the sense that we think of holiness. We sometimes list it as an attribute of God. But really, I think it's good to think of it. It certainly is an attribute of God, but it indeed is an intensifier of his mm. of his other attributes. He has a holy love. He has a holy wrath. Uh, and so really, it, I think in terms of himself and us as his covenant, as his covenant relationship, I think it's a, his holy love, for instance, again, is an important qualifier when it comes to his relationship with us. 
Amen. And as Beaky points out here, and as I've heard R.C. Sproul point out numerous times, and as I've heard John MacArthur point out numerous times, and I'm sure many others have pointed it out numerous times, that the holiness of God, that is the one attribute of God that you will see repeated thrice, yep. three times exactly. in the Holy Scriptures, that God is holy, holy, yep. holy. holy. No yep. other attribute is repeated right. to the superlative degree like right. that. Well, Mike, I'll ask you to close us in prayer, but before you do that, I just want to read one thing that Beaky says about holiness, and I think it's a good a good place for us to uh, hit a stopping point today. He says this, five, page 569, he says, in summary, we would offer the following definition of holiness. God's holiness means that he is set apart by his glory for his glory. The ontological aspect, and that ontological means, uh, you know, purpose or being, the ontological aspect of holiness in the majesty of all God's perfections is reflected in the statement, he is set apart for his glory. He is holy because of who he is as God. The ethical aspect of holiness in God's moral perfection appears in the words, he is set apart for his glory. He is holy because he is zealously committed to displaying who he is and all he does. And I, and I know John Piper, and I'm going to butcher this quote, but John Piper says, the greatest thing that God could ever do, if we can, if we can put it that way, uh, the highest thing that he must do the greatest thing that he can do is to glorify himself exactly. and to do to, to miss that's, doing that. That's the whole point. Yeah. Not to be God. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, brothers. What a great discussion today, boy. I just, uh, it, you know, Marvin brought up the doxological aspect at the beginning the worshipful aspect. How can you talk about these things and your affections and your heart not be raised up? I mean, yeah. we serve a great, great God. So yeah. Mike close this brother. Heavenly Father, we th thank you for uh, this. Uh, just this time we we've shared over uh, over our last <clears throat> discussion uh, of these these uh, six chapters, Lord. But we thank you for the who you are, a holy, uh, divine, and righteous God, a God that we uh, uh, who we who we love and who we cherish, Lord. May we always be dedicated uh, and disciplined in the reading and studying of your Word. Uh, seeking to have more revealed of the knowledge of you, Lord, so that our relationship with you grows. Uh, Lord, we thank you for um, uh, who you are, Heavenly Father. We thank you for your, that we have the privilege to be your children and that we uh, strive to, uh, to grow in, in, in holiness as we walk our, walk our journey with you. Lord, we thank you for all your, your, your mercy, your grace. We thank you for your many blessings. We ask now that as we continue this day that you uh, give us the strength and protection that we need. Uh, may we uh, 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 stay disciplined and stay on the, the, uh, the path you as our cornerstone have set for us, Lord. Mm. And uh, may, may you all see our, your light and salt in us. For it's in your name I pray, amen. 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 Well, guys, thank y'all so much. And we want to thank uh, those in our church family and maybe anyone they pass these to who take the time uh, to listen to these. So warning, uh, we, warning folks. It's a long one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, well, they've gotten all the way to this far. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> they've experienced what you're warning. About, yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. If, if you were, if you were an editor, you'd cut this, put it at the front. Yeah, put it at the front. All yeah. right. Well, guys, <laughs> good to see y'all and we'll, we'll see you later as we end. Okay.